Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. It got to the point where I ended up doing like presentation, like I put together a <laughs> presentation and I, I delivered it to every one of the stations in my city telling my story, telling like like kind of a no holds barred account of like what kind of a piece of shit I turned out to be and, and what changed. You know, I told my story, I said like, this is what happened. This is what it was like. This is what happened. And this is what it's like now. And, you know, for me and it, as time went on in, in recovery and I started sponsoring people and helping other people. I was doing, you know, I was speaking in the jails and the prisons. I was doing like whatever I could for my recovery and others recovery. I was like, why not give this back to work? And to my surprise and delight, it was so well received. I had people coming out of the woodwork. Like, I can't believe you said that stuff because I've been going through this. I can't believe that you went through that and you didn't say anything because I've been holding this thing in forever. Can I just dump it on you. <laughs> I was like, yes, like I'm here for you. Just give it all to me and let's let's figure it out. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blassingame and I am your host. And before we get started, I am going to ask you to do me the hugeliest favor of all. Please go and subscribe to this podcast. You're listening to The Courage to Change wherever you get your podcasts. And please, please, please rate and review. Give us those five stars if you feel we deserve it. I much appreciate it. So if you're wondering how you can support us, please hop on and do that. Today, we have my friend, Chris Howe. Chris endured 17 long years of addiction to alcohol and drugs while working as a firefighter. He was different from everyone else in the department. He was smaller, tattooed, and spent his time away from the job with alcoholics, addicts, and criminals. This double life filled him with self-hatred and secrets. He'd been affected deeply by childhood sexual trauma and PTSD on the job and had no place to put it. Instead, he was asked every day to bottle up his feelings and do his job. And the only way to cope with that involved massive amounts of alcohol and drugs to numb it all. Eventually, the internal pressure became too much, resulting in three suicide attempts in three years before finally finding recovery on the morning he wrote his final suicide plan. Today, Chris is 11 years sober, a captain with the Niagara Falls Fire Department and an addiction recovery speaker. He shares his story in and out of the prison system, leads a Buddhist-inspired recovery group, and hopes to inspire others through his actions and his new life in recovery. This is one of my top 10 favorite episodes of The Courage to Change. Chris is incredible. He hits on so many important points. In fact, I wouldn't let Scott overcut this one, you guys. It's going to be longer. You just are going to have to deal with it because it's incredible. Chris is an incredible human being who is smashing stigma for first responders, for men struggling with PTSD, recovering from sexual trauma. There are so many different aspects to this. His Buddhist recovery is incredible. His Muay Thai experience is incredible. I could go on and on. But here's the cool part. You could just listen to the episode from start to finish and you'll get it all. So if there was ever an episode to listen to till the very end, this is it, my friends. I'm not going to give away anymore. Just suffice it to say, I believe you will enjoy this one tremendously. So without further ado, I give you my new friend, Chris Howe. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. 
Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I've listened to a couple of your other podcasts and your documentaries. So I'm going to try to uh, get some of the angles that you haven't talked about as much publicly. So bear with me if anything is too much, you let me know. No, it's okay. I'm on an open book. Okay. Awesome. So I want to talk, I want to start with, you've been clean and sober for 11 and a half years. Yeah. about that? Awesome. Awesome. I want to start with a picture of where you started and a little bit about the culture of your family, which was, you know, don't ask, don't tell. And then the first trauma that you experienced as a little boy. Uh, yeah. So as you said, I came from uh, a family that was very, yeah, don't ask, don't tell uh, what happens between or behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. Myself as a child, I was I was shy, like all children, but I think I was a little extra shy. I was very anxious. I was really unsure of myself and my surroundings. I was smaller than most of the kids that were my age. So my peers were physically bigger than me, more inclined to sports and team sort of things. Uh, for me that, you know, I tried team sports and uh, it wasn't for me. Yeah. My household was, I don't know. I always, I, I kind of describe it as a place where I felt like I was always walking on eggshells. So my, my father's family and him, they were like a business family. My dad was away a lot. He was uh, back and forth to the States. He was doing land development. My mom came from like a really hardworking blue collar family. Both sides had a lot of drinking. It's not for me to say if alcoholic drinking or not, but when I look at it now, I can say it was quite excessive. I mean, I didn't really know. I didn't know what a family function was without alcohol. I kind of grew up around that culture. Drinking was normal. There was always a stock liquor cabinet in my house. My aunts and uncles, it was just like, a, that was how you were social. And that was what I saw as like, that's what grownups do. You know, that's how they socialize. And I didn't see any problem with because I didn't know any different. My mom was uh, really anxious and I don't know, I think she was a person who was suffering for a long time and stuff was going on with her and my father that I think really affected her. So there's a lot of mental health issues. My mom was quite strict, quite, I mean, I think she was quite emotionally and verbally abusive. Sometimes it got physical. My dad was not so much, he was more the you know, he was there sometimes. And when when he was, he was kind of the fun dad. My mom did a lot of, she took care of the home. She was working. She was the disciplinarian. You know, she was on me and my brother, but I think more so me, I was the older kid for just about everything. I mean, I didn't know which version of my mom I was going to get from minute to minute sometimes. You know, it could be great. And then the next minute I turn around and there's something's gone wrong and I don't know what it is. And, you know, I'm catching the brunt of it. It was like tumultuous, I think, at home. But I didn't know that at the time because I had no basis of comparison. So when I started to really realize that was when I started making friends and that I found very tough. I wasn't, you know, I made friends easy. I didn't keep friends very easily. I was embarrassed to have people over at my house because I didn't know what was going to go on. But when I go to visit other friends and have 
have a sleepover or go for dinner or whatever, I noticed like it felt different. But the atmosphere, the there was a, a warmth that I hadn't known before. And listen, I have to preface this by saying like my parents are good people. They did their very best with, you know, what they had and what they could. They were young parents and, you know, that's tough for anybody. So, I, you know, I'm not laying blame on anything and I'm not trying to call anybody out that this is just the way it was for me. I was seven years old and, um, you know, I was, my parents were both working. I'd, you know, I'd have people like caregivers and I ended up with, uh, one caregiver who, you know, took advantage of me and, and kind of coerced me into some sexual things that I wasn't, I mean, I was seven years old. I didn't know what it was about. I just knew that something was off about this. It didn't feel right. It was, a, it was a game. It was played off as a game. You know, it was like, let's play doctor and, you know, this kind of thing. But like, this is just our thing. This is like, you know, it was framed in a way to me that the person wanted me to feel special for doing this or for being part of this. And it was, it wanted me to feel exclusive. Those are two things I hadn't felt, you know, up to that point really in, in anything. So, you know, I didn't talk about it. It happened, you know, and until so that person wasn't part of, you know, my caregiving team. But it changed. It changed everything for me. When I finally got with, a, you know, a different caregiver, I, you know, I really realized that like, okay, this, this person doesn't play that game. This person doesn't have conversations like that with me. What was that? And then, you know, I started like thinking a little deeper into it. And, and I realized like something, this is wrong. And I just... I didn't know what was wrong about it. I just knew in my gut that something was wrong and I had been taken advantage of or used for something that I wasn't, you know, I, I hadn't agreed to be part of. Really. But you, you did derive feelings of being special, you know, from what I'm hearing, you did derive feelings of being special and, and recognized which was something that it didn't sound like you had a lot. So it was, it sounded conflicting for you. Yeah, it was conflicting. And yeah, because on, you know, on one side, it felt very wrong and it felt like very, I don't know, for lack of a better term, icky. Right. right. Yeah. No, um, that's the right term. <laughs> yeah. And uh, on the other side, it was like, okay, it was a tension and I wasn't getting that in my social circles. My parents were both very busy. I might have been getting like some kind of attention, but it was only when things went wrong. So yeah, it made me feel like part of something. And like, as much as I didn't like that icky feeling, I liked the fact that I was part of a secret thing that nobody knew about. It was, uh, yeah, it felt special in a, in a very odd and wrong way. I think that's one of the things about, and I, I had to share the same experience with you at five. It was a game. It was like, I didn't really understand. One of the things that happens is this, where our brains are not, we can't make set. We don't know what's happening. We don't know the meaning of it. But if we are getting a weird need met, like you're getting a need met in something that doesn't feel right. That's a very confusing place to start. And then on top of it, it's your first sexual experience. So it's also wiring things in your head. So there's so much going on. And then this idea that you're either not safe or that you are safe because it's your secret or all these different things. And that is that becomes this layer where you start to build on top of. And it's a really important piece because I think that a lot of the time people think that when we talk about these traumas early on in life, they think of this like heart, like this attacker out of nowhere and right. this this like traumatic event that's violent and all these things. And most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, it's it's more confusing than anything else. For sure. It's the, the devil, you know, kind of thing, right? Like it's, right. it's, it really is like, okay, this is shapes the trajectory of, you know, anything beyond that point. What things changed for you after that? 
I feel like my idea of self-worth changed quite a bit. I felt like I was, I was, I was less than like, I talked to some of my friends and I poke around about like, Oh, what happens? You know, what you guys do with your babysitter or less, you know, did you, did you guys play this game or whatever? Nobody shared it, the, you know, the same experience. And of course I didn't share it with them, but I mean, to myself, I was very, uh, you know, like, okay, there's, there is really, as time went on, there is really something wrong with that. So I felt like, why me? First of all, I felt like, did I do something to provoke this? Am I just as guilty? You know, that's that kind of thing. And then, you know, there was a feeling of um, a mountain of shame around it. Yeah. 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 Do you think that there were any signals or feelings of wanting to share this with people and not knowing how? Do you think that the don't ask, don't tell culture played a part in you not revealing what happened? Absolutely. That was my upbringing. It was very, you know, it was clear to me, like, you know, you don't talk about family business, you you know, and and make it look good on the outside was the theme. As long as the neighbors and the, you know, the school teachers and everybody thinks it's okay, then it is okay. So yeah, no, I wasn't, you know, as, as I would poke around, definitely not willing to volunteer any of this information to anyone else. How did that affect your first drink did it, or drug? Did you think it expedited that? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, as time went on, so I took my first drink at 13 years old. You know, of course, I, I'd have, I'd be you know, stealing some stuff from my parents when I was a bit younger. But like the first time I was out in a social setting, I was 13 years old. You know, my parents had just been, uh, had just split. And there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. My mom was getting arrested, put in jail. My, my, you know, there was a lot of talk. And again, don't ask, don't tell. I couldn't know the details about what was going on. So I was like very confused about, okay, I have to choose who to live with. And then, you know, when my mom would get arrested, it was like, okay, there's no choice in that. Like I have to go with that. And then that caused a lot of chaos in the in the family unit. Uh, there was a lot of shame and embarrassment around it. You know, my mom was getting arrested and then it became kind of public knowledge of like stuff that was going on. She was, she had a bit of a breakdown, you know, on top of already a rough go with mental illness and that sort of thing. So there was a lot of things that were out in the public. And, and so my friend's parents would tell my friends and then my friends would ask me about it. And I wouldn't know. The people I was around was telling me stories about my family that I didn't even know. And I felt so silly. I felt so in the dark. So I kind of secluded myself from all of that. But the first time, so I, I agreed to, you know, at one point go to a party with some friends and um, I went and there was a lot of older kids around. They were kids that I thought were cool. You know, I looked up to them. I thought, oh, like, you know, I can't believe I'm with these people and I'm not getting picked on or, or bullied or, or anything like that. Somebody put a drink in front of me. You know, it was a beer. I drank the beer and I probably drank it in like, you know, two goes, you know what I mean? Like I didn't, I didn't sip on the beer. I just chugged it away. Cause I, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to, you know, how it was going to affect me. And then they gave me another one. I took it, I drank it. And you know, probably at three beers, I felt like all of my insecurities, all of my shame, guilt, all of my anxiety, whatever it was that I, I was holding in and these secrets that I had, I just felt it all melt away. And I got this warm feeling of like, and you know, it really mimicked what I felt in my friends' houses that I would go to and feel that that warmth of family. And I had these people around me and like more people came, more people came, I drank more. And so the first time I drank, I drank to blackout. You know, I woke up 
so confused. Like, what happened? Where am I? Who are these people? And everybody was like, you know, slapping me five. And like, everybody knew my name. Everybody's telling me all these great things that I did. And you were so much fun. I get invited to another party next weekend. I had all these like people around me. There was like, there was older girls that were like, you're so cute. You were so funny last night. You know, this kind of thing. And I, and I thought, you know, oh my God, this is my new home. I am not, I am like, this is, how do I feel like this 24 seven? Because that felt like nothing I had ever experienced before. And I was the happiest 13 year old, I think that, you know, ever existed in, in anticipation for that next party that I could go to. And, you know, I went to the next one and, and, and the, the ball kept rolling from there. Right. You know, it, it, I was picturing when I was like, 13, 14 or whatever. And, and you drink and you have the, the feeling of like all your troubles melt away. And like for yeah. me as a 13, 14 year old girl, my clothes always went with my, all my troubles okay. melting away. You know? like yeah. Somehow my troubles removed my clothes as well. I was like, for why, am sure. I, why am I always naked? Um, hey, we would have been great friends at 13, I mean, 14. You, you were, yeah. that, well, that was the thing. Those were the girls I needed around me. And, it, oh, and yeah. I had that. If you had told me, that I was going to end up putting a needle in my arm. I, I There was not a world in which that was going to happen. Not a world. It literally was unfathomable. Even from that point that you and I are both talking about, how did you, did you believe that was unfathomable? And what was your trajectory like? Uh, so I didn't, I kind of knew. I was like a punk rock, hardcore kid. Like my idols were like Sid Vicious. Like I thought that was, I wanted the live fast, die young lifestyle. Like that's what I, you know, that that was a thing for me that I thought like, oh God, that is something that I will try. And because if alcohol, I mean, and you know, other drugs came shortly after alcohol, you know, like I was uh, smoking, you know, smoking a lot of weed, you know, doing acid, you know, on uh, pretty much every weekend that I could. And that's, uh, you know, 14 years old. Like I, I knew that I was going to get to that point because it, it's it, honestly the movies and the, the people that I idolized, I found a sort of romanticism. I liked the grittiness and the, the edginess of it all. It was attractive. It was, like I said, I, I, I thought it as romantic. Like right. I thought it, I, I did. I really, I, I really thought that that was like, that was the way to go out. You know, that was the way to, you know, just like, just like go hard for a short time and then that's it. You're done. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a twisted thought really, but that it was what I was around. It was what I was into at the time. And so I think I knew that eventually, like, I mean, I was scared of it, but I, I think I knew that I had an inkling that it might progress to something more because like I, I, anytime I tried a new drug or tried a different route of, you know, administering that drug, I liked it even more. You know, like I, it brought me, it brought me more of what I was looking for. You think like, I remember being, I remember doing heroin and thinking like, and then, and getting like the point where you're sick and well and going, what the fuck is this? Like, are you kidding me? Sick and well, this is not what I signed up for. You think anybody really knows what they're headed to? I don't think so. You know, yeah. we watch too many movies. We <laughs> yeah. think, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think anyone's prepared for the the reality of all of it, really. I, I certainly wasn't. You know, I like the idea, but the reality didn't match my idea. There's also this conscious ignoring, like we would watch Blow. I remember when I first went to treatment and they would talk about playing the tape through. And this was, I grew up, we grew up in VHS. They would talk about playing the tape through. And my girlfriend and I would literally get an eight ball and we would watch the movie Blow and we would 
stop the movie before <laughs> their lives fell apart and we would start it over. And it wasn't, I didn't even like until they were like, play the tape through. I'm like, I literally physically stopped the VHS and started that bitch over and was like back to the bar. Yeah. And it just, it's like, it was, there was something ingrained in me that knew like, Nope, we're not going there. Yeah. I think we don't want to know. We don't want to know the reality of it and where it actually leads to like inevitably for all of us, you know, nobody's ever a successful drug addict. Right. I haven't met any. I don't know them. <laughs> yeah. What types. So drinking and drugging is a huge coping skill, but there are other coping skills that fall into that category that we often do that we often bring into recovery with us. Like doing geographics was that one that you uh, employed. For sure. So, you know, I was, I guess grade 11, I was 17 years old. I had an opportunity to go out to New Zealand for a few months. And um, I, you know, my dad paid for a, a flight for me to go. And, and I thought, you know, getting on that plane, I thought, because I had, I had already started to feel the, the effects of my use and abuse of drugs. You know, people were already starting to distance themselves. I was feeling like that when I walked into a party, it wasn't this like, oh, he's here again. Like, let's go. It was like, fuck, he's here again, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I remember getting on that plane and thinking, um, okay, this is your chance to be just Chris, not Chris the fuck up, not Chris the drug addict, not Chris the manipulator, not Chris the, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, you know, like I could just be Chris and I have a chance to go reinvent myself, be whoever I want to be. I'm on like literally the other side of the earth in New Zealand. And yeah, you know, I went, that didn't work. You know, you always, you know, like they say, you, you bring yourself with you. I didn't, I wasn't prepared to change anything about my life. I wasn't prepared to, you know, alter or, you know, I, I just thought I have an idea of who I want to be and I'll just be that person, but I couldn't, uh, you know what I mean? So I came home, you know, not the, yeah, I didn't stay as long as I had planned. I came home kind of like feeling a little defeated, kind of like a, a dog with his tail between its legs. Like, okay, back to this. And, you know, I had taken time off school to go there and I, so I had to like repeat some stuff at high school, which, you know, for me, it was just a big party. I was not passing all my classes anyways. I was hardly showing up. I was, you know, when I would show up, it was to like pick up friends to go like get high or get drunk or, you know, sell something to somebody. Yeah. So I went back to that, you know, and I feel like that geographical cure idea, you know, we, we, I've done it. I've tried, I've attempted that cure several times in my life. Like I've moved all over the place, you know, and I always with that intention of, you know, reinventing my myself and becoming, you know, escaping this horrible reality. And of course I go to wherever I'm going and I find, you know, people that are just like me, you know, I did graduate high school. I took five years instead of four to get through it. And I moved down to the Cayman Islands, like in the Caribbean. And again, that was my, my intention to get away, to reinvent myself. And um, I thought, wow, beautiful, like blue water, white sand, like beautiful women, all this, like, so this is my idea. I'm going to be somebody totally different. So I got a, a job as a bartender <laughs> with, <laughs> on a beach. So like, you know, here, I, I'm going to go escape. You reimagine all everything about my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I plunked myself behind a bar, right. have access to all the, all, you know, all the cash behind the bar, all the booze behind the bar, money on hand because, you know, tips are insane and you're walking around with cash all the time. And a bunch of people that are getting fucked up all the time that have access to anything else that you want. So, you know, within a couple of weeks of me being there, I knew who everybody was. I knew where to get everything I needed. I knew, you know, who was exactly like me, who I could trust 
trust to help me out get you know getting me something or or helping me out of a jam or whatever like i found i found my people everywhere i went and you know and like i said these are weak attempts like i said i I plunked myself in a bar trying to like not be an addict or an alcoholic (laughs) yeah makes perfect sense to me (laughs) yeah i mean it did (laughs) so uh, you know after i spent my time out there but yeah this is back in canada i was like playing in uh you know i was playing in bands like i get guys together and we play in bands and and kind of travel around a little bit stuff like that girls drugs whatever whatever we wanted you know and 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 we made a little bit of money doing it too i remember going with uh, a couple of the guys in my band went out of town we went out to a bar i got like completely absolutely wasted i ran out of drugs you know you play the like i'm, I'm too drunk i need to do this now i'm too this i need to do that and, you know, and um i saw i was just this like puddle of a. Uh, Actually, I think one of the bouncers called me a puddle at one point. Like, you can't come in. You're like a puddle. And so I was getting kicked out of bars and I got separated from my friends. And I don't, I don't remember getting separated from them. I remember getting kicked out of a couple bars and like, you know, talking back to some people, whatever happened, happened. But I woke up the next day in between two houses, beaten black and blue. My pants were around my knees and like I was bleeding from places that you don't want to bleed from, which, you know, and I have zero recollection of what happened. I have an idea, a very good idea because of the state I was in of what must have happened to me, but I must have lived off to the wrong people, something, but I had no protection, no nothing. Like there was no, I had no defense. Uh, and I, you know, so yeah, I mean, it was, you know, and I was, a, I was an adult at this time, you know, and I've been beaten to a pulp and like whether it was like sexually or an object who knows what what happened but you know it brought me back to being seven years old again and being completely powerless and completely just weak and feeble and you know what and and again all those same feelings of like did i do something to aggravate this situation did i is it is it must be it must be my fault people don't just walk around doing that to people for no reason i got myself into this and like it was one of those moments of like what the fuck have i become you know like this is this is this is not the way i i saw it turning out and you know i went back with friends and i you know i made up some elaborate story about like you should see the other guy and again don't ask don't tell i didn't talk about it i only started talking about it you know in in you know more recent years i didn't unpack it in any way i was lying about it i was like you know laughing it off but really i ended up i ended up drinking more using more like abusing myself more because i couldn't face that you know these things have happened to me and i had no defense i had no you know and i had no recollection and i just at that point it was like stay oblivious as long as you can because you never want to return to that state of like okay let's actually think about this or that state of like lucidity where you can actually begin to unpack and again i didn't have anybody to unpack it with and i wasn't capable of handling that kind of stress and and you know the the shame and the the guilt and the you know all of the all of the emotions that you know that event and everything else leading up to that point to me i mean it was it was awful. In your 11 plus years of recovery, have you had a lot of men 
share a similar type experience with you as a result of their drinking? More than I could count. More than you could count. Yeah. I mean, guys that I've sponsored, guys that I've like mentored in groups in, you know, especially in men's groups, people are opening up and talking about it. Anybody that has mentored or sponsored me in recovery always, inevitably always has a relatable story that could say, listen, man, you know, you're not alone. This, this happened to me too. And, you know, I know what that's like. And that, you know, for, for guys, I mean, that it's not an easy thing to talk about. It's, it, it's guys think that shows weakness. I'm sure this accelerates your your drinking and using. What starts to come next and and gets you to this place of eventually you join EMS, but take me from this totally out of control person to a person who's able to have a job. <laughs> yeah, are- I yeah, for sure. So I ended up getting a job. I was working for a temp service and just doing factory work. Uh, they would like place temporary workers in different factories. And, and, you know, for me, I ended up like, I worked in a, a little machine shop we built car parts and uh, I kind of got into it. There was something about it that I liked. And I know one thing that I really liked about it is I was working a steady night shift and, you know, the management wasn't around on night shifts. And it was one of those jobs where you could set your machine up and then go out to the parking lot and you kind of have a have a little party out in the parking lot, go back three hours later, reset the machine. And, and so it ended up being, you know, I worked at 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. You know, it was very like alcohol and drug fueled nights and, you know, high productivity. So I ended up because of the productivity piece of it, you know, because I was just like zoned in. Um, <laughs> they saw something in me and they offered me a full-time job. And I thought, oh my God, this is perfect. I got the job where I can get as fucked up as I want all night long. And then, you know, continue the party somewhere else, crash for a few hours, go back to work for the party. So I'm getting paid to party in my mind. And, you know, I could, you know, I could be doing like shooting massive amounts of blow through the night and just plowing through these, you know, these jobs and like, you know, I'm getting check marks across the board by management the next day when they come in every day. So day shift starts at seven. We end at seven. This guy, this like older gentleman. I mean, he was like a big, heavy set, burly dude, tattoos up his arms, big beard. He like looked like an old biker. He would just sit there with his arms crossed and like stare at me from down this aisle away where I worked. And I thought, okay, I either did something to piss this guy off in a drunken stupor on shift change, or he knows something about me and he's going to rat me to the boss. I just couldn't figure it out. So I, you know, I just go and I just avoid him, avoid him, avoid him. And one day he corners me and like I was in the bathroom, I turn around from the, the urinal and the dude's standing there. I'm like, oh fuck, what's this about? Like I got like prison rape scenes going through my yeah, yeah. or something <laughs> and uh and uh i'm like what? okay I'm like hey man what's up and he just goes uh yeah i've been watching you and i'm like yeah i noticed and, uh, <laughs> and he's like um then he just so nonchalantly and very like uh, his voice didn't match his exterior appearance but he was like he was gruff but he was like he had this warmth to his voice like there was something different about him that i expected him to be this like i don't know this bad brawler dude or something like i don't know i thought he was gonna kick my ass and he ended up giving me a piece of paper with his name and his number on it and uh <laughs> i'm like either i got a date or like, right. you know, he, yeah. he said he said listen 
I've been watching you and I just want you to know if you ever get sick and tired of being sick and tired, you get in the call. And I took the number from him and was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Some big guy just walked up to me in the bathroom and was like, hey, I've been watching you. Here's my number. <laughs> like, right. Could have been a lot of different scenarios. It could have been. Yeah. Anyways, you know, for me, I didn't, what stuck with me and, and, and it would have been like me to normally like crumple that piece of paper up and throw it away and, you know, talk some shit about him or something like that. But there was something about the way he spoke and what he said, the words really, they left a mark on me. This like, if you're ever sick and tired, read sick and tired. I had no idea what he meant. So I kept the number for some reason. I put it in my wallet and, you know, two or three months later, I'm in a bar, you know, dealers aren't picking up my calls anymore. Like I owe too much money. No friends want to drink with me. I'm a disaster. The bartender is like, you know, probably wishing that I would just leave and I keep ordering drinks and ordering drinks and ordering drinks, but I'd have no way to pay for it. And I thought I was just going to like dash. I thought I was going to get out of there, you know, and I'm sitting there in this like, like drunken stupor flipping through my wallet. And I was like, you know, maybe I have like a credit card that I stole or something in here that I could try to run and just tell him, oh, my card doesn't work. I can, I'll come back and pay cash tomorrow. And this guy's number is like just there. And I was like, and, and you know, I saw the number said Terry and it's got his number. And I'm like, okay, I am pretty sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And at this point, you know, I've been through the ringer a few times, like I'm, it was enough for me at that time. I was 22 years old. So I like I either bummed a quarter off of the bartender. I stole it from his tip jar. Who knows? You know, it was a payphone back then. And um, I called Terry and I was like, hey, it's it's Chris from work. You said you could help me out. I feel like I'm pretty sick and tired of being sick and tired. I don't know what that means, but what can you do for me? And um, truly, and I say this when I, whenever I tell this story, I truly believe that all I wanted for him to do was come and pay my bar tab. Like that is what I was hoping for is you'll come and pay my bar tab and I'll see you at work. So he said, where are you? And um, I told him, he said, stay there. I'll be there in 10 minutes. It was late at night too. So he shows up at this bar. He did pay the bar tab, which I was like, you know, overjoyed, but he paid it conditionally. So he's like, I will pay your bar tab on one condition. Come across the street to the coffee shop. Let me buy you a sandwich and a coffee and talk to me. Just listen to what I have to tell you. And I was like, I'm in, man, you paid my tab. So we go across I sit down and he starts to tell me his story. And it was like, you know, he was doing a, he was doing a 12 step call. Like he told me a story. He had been sober for like 20 years at the time, you know, was telling me all about his past. And I, I was like, yeah, that's how I feel. This is like, I can, you know, and then he told me what happened going to meetings and, you know, at the end of his spiel, he's like, listen, do you want any of that for you? Or you want to keep going like this? And I was like, yeah, I need, I need, I need what you got. Like, I really do. I need it more than, you know. And he said, okay, tomorrow, you know, after my shift, call in sick. Like he could say, call in sick to work. I'm taking you to a meeting. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, you know, I called in sick. He picked me up, brought me to a, an AA meeting. And I remember that drive. I know geographically where we went from and, and where this meeting is. And it took about eight minutes to drive there. It felt like about an hour and a half, two hours. Like it was the longest ride to me. I had no idea what AA was all about. All I knew is what I'd seen in, in movies. And I thought like, oh my God, it's a bunch of losers sitting in a church, like, you know, bitching about their day. And like, hey, sometimes it is, but like, uh, you know, I, I, Not I, no. I thought, <laughs> um, but like, you know, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know if I could do this. I'm not, you know, I'm not ready to sit and let the idea of being in a church was like odd to me. And, yeah. um, will it light on fire? That's what I used to say is, is, yeah. I'm, is it going to light on fire when I walk in? 
Yeah. So <laughs> I walk in and I'm like terrified. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I have zero. Like I stayed sober for the guy that day. He made me promise uh, if I showed up, look like smelling like booze or looking fucked up, deals off. And he, at that fact, he said, too, you owe me the money for the bar tab if you show up <laughs> like stinking like go. booze. There you go. Yeah. So I walk through the front door and I'm like, okay, what is this? All these people are laughing and joking and they're like smiling and then like they've got these faces lit up and like, you know, I can see the whites of their eyes, which I'm not used to seeing on people. You know, it's like the people I surround, I didn't know any different. Like I thought anybody that was like going to their job at eight in the morning when I was still partying was like full of shit and they were just going to pick up. Like I thought they were always all a facade. I thought everybody was just like me. And these people, they were laughing and joking and they want to shake my hand. And you know, you get that feeling of a kid, like what what am I walking into and what do you want from me? Like, where's the Kool-Aid I'm going to have to drink? You know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just a bunch of nice people that were happy to be alive. And I thought, what are they so happy about? They're sober. What do they have to be happy? You know what I mean? Honestly, I thought like, what's the, where's the uh, excitement hate to break in you that? Guys. Yeah. Yeah. But things are bad here, people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I was by far the youngest kid in the room. I was hearing, you know, and then I, and I go to a couple more meetings with him and I'd hear some like horror stories, like, you know, this, like these, like, you know, long time, like prison terms that guys were serving and like, this, you know, living on, like eating other garbage kids, living on the streets or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I tried to, I faked it for a while. And, you know, I think I stayed sober for a couple of weeks and, you know, literally just long enough to not, not feel like shit actually get some life back into me. And I thought, okay, I did. AA next like time to graduate and I threw myself I li- like I threw myself a party I was like yeah I'm done AA like I heard it all you know and by the way those people are nothing like me none of that stuff's happened to me I you know at that point I haven't been in jail I haven't wrecked a car I haven't like broken up a marriage I haven't lost a house whatever it was I didn't have to eat out of garbage cans or whatever and so I ended up going and I, I told Terry at work one day I said you know it's just not for me I'm not you know I said that I I that's that stuff I can't relate to you know they say you're supposed to relate to these people I can't relate to that that stuff hasn't happened to me and he just looked at me and he said yeah it hasn't happened to you yet and I was like nah never me never me that'll never happen of course all those things did happen to me but he said okay like, and, and he did what he was supposed to do. He showed me, he, he told me about recovery. He showed me the rooms. He let me leave on my own terms and he didn't try to force me back. He just said, you know where we are. That's incredible. I mean, it, he did. It's a, it's a perfect, I'll, I'll approaching you at <laughs> the urinal might've been the only thing I would have left off, but he, <laughs> but no, he did. He really, you know, he, it, we're attraction rather than promotion. And, and he, he really did a great, a really great job of that. And it's part of your story. It is. It it's is a very big a, part of your story. A massive part of my story. I credit that guy with my life because had he not shown me the rooms and let me go out and prove it to myself that I was one of those people, had he like, like tried to force my hand and like, no, you've got to come back. You're going to die. You're going to, you know, he said, okay, go find out on your own, you know, do it on your terms and, uh, and we'll see you again, hopefully, you know, that are kind of you, thing. Are and, you listening? Parents out there, are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But you know, his 20 years sober, he knew what he was doing. He did the, he did his job, but it left a mark. So for me, drinking and using after that changed. I was like, okay, like, you know, I realized that there was another world out there where people were, were like me, but they were better. 
they'd gotten well. And uh, I'm like, I didn't want to look at it for a long time. But, you know, in the meantime, yeah, I, I ended up going to school. I became a, a paramedic for about, uh, well, and I mean, I didn't do it the right way. I cheated my way through school. I, you know, I was selling That's what drugs. what you want to hear so about every my- paramedic. It's terrifying, but I did, you know, I manipulated people and I was good at that, you know, and I, I was selling drugs to most of the kids that were in my class. I was like, you know, I, I was just, and I, I met a girl, a smart girl that helped me along my way. And I ended up getting a job. I knew from, from day one that like go sitting in that, like putting that uniform on, I didn't deserve it. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I, now I'm really playing with people. Not only am I playing with my own life, but I'm playing with other people's lives now. So I knew, I realized very quickly that I couldn't do that. Ended up going to school down in Texas to, to, you know, for fire and ended up with that job ultimately. But what I was going to say is that like, you know, through, you know, the next five or six years after I'd been introduced at 22 to the rooms of recovery, I started using those rooms for certain things. So when like, you know, like I I started getting in trouble with the cops and then it was like, okay, I got to make it look good. So I dip into the rooms and sit in recovery, like sit in AA meetings or NACA, whatever meetings uh, that I could find uh, for a few weeks. Or if I had a, you know, a partner of mine was pissed off about, you know, the way I was acting, the way I was abusing myself and the way I was most likely manipulating them, you know, it's okay. I'll get better i know where to go and so i kept dipping my toe in and every time i I went to these meetings i was like looking at the slogans on the walls and i'm like such bullshit it's such i was so arrogant and i was so dismissive of all of it i was just using it for like you know get work off my back get like cops off my back get my girl off my back or like appease somebody else it was never for me because i really wanted to quit i I always had an exit plan you know it was like make it look good for for a little while and so i just put that there because it comes into play later in the story anyways yeah once i started working with the fire department that was a whole other story for me too Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, friends. Lion Rock Recovery is offering educational scholarship money to students who are pursuing careers in substance use disorder treatment. Many of us, myself included, owe a huge debt of gratitude to the incredible professional counselors who helped us on our recovery journey. Lion Rock wants to highlight the need for more counselors through the Lion Rock Recovery Scholarship, which is offering four lucky students the opportunity to win $500. The application deadline is August 15th, 2022 and the winners will be announced on September 15th, 2022. Please go to lionrockrecovery.com slash resources slash scholarship to apply. I want to drop in on this. So one of the things in your story you tell that's really, I was ruminating on earlier was the way that they introduce you or the the captain and starts to talk about like the culture of the fire department. And I will say this, I have been unable to get more than one firefight American firefighter on to tell their story. Even oh, wow. yes, they are very reluctant because of the culture. So your captain says, you know, and I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but I want to point something out in it. Your captain talks about the culture of weakness and preying upon weakness and all, and you can't show weakness. And as you were talking about these things, what 
I was thinking was the definition of courage, right? But we see firefighters as courageous. You're running into a fucking burning building, like everyone's running out, right? So courageous, that's what you need. And the requirement that you were told to be was that you could be unafraid, not weak, any of these things. But the definition of courage is that you are afraid and you do it anyway. And the idea I know, and you know, that when you're not afraid of something, when you're not afraid of death, when you're not afraid of pain, when you're not afraid, it's not a courageous act. When we run into a burning building because we're suicidal, we're not being courageous because courage requires you to overcome fear. And the fire department was saying, you can't be afraid at all. Like you can't, it's not about overcoming fear. It's about not having feelings. Yeah. So the, it was the, one of the first days that I got on the job and actually like put the uniform on and we were all probationary firefighters. And, you know, there was nine of us that got hired at one time. And there was a group of us hanging out like on a break. And one of the, like, he was a senior firefighter came up to us and he's this like old school dude. He says, you know, if I give you, and he's like smoking a cigarette, puts his leg up on the bench, like, you know, like he's holding court. And he's like, if I can give you guys one piece of advice to carry through the rest of your career, it's to never show weakness around here because we pray on our week. And he said, you're paid good money. Do this job. You're lucky to have the job. What you see here and what you hear here, you know, you just, you know, you suck it up, you walk it up, you be, you man up, you, you know what I mean? It was all these like typical things that we now know are like so, so toxic, but he said it all to us. And, you know, I think some people probably thought, uh, you know, I know that anyways, or whatever. But like, to me, it was like, oh, like I can't show my weakness here. And I thought like, I've got a ton of weaknesses. I'm trying to, A, I'm trying to hide the fact that I'm a drunk and drug addict and I'm, you know, on my days off. And then I'm trying to put my uniform on and be this upstanding citizen. That's a massive secret that I can't talk about. And B, like, okay, I know I'm going to see some really, really wicked shit on the job. And I'm not allowed to talk about that with anybody. Like then, I mean, to me, what ended up happening is, you know, when this, when I saw this gnarly stuff happening and I, you know, had these very traumatizing calls, I didn't talk about it. I went home and I drank and I used about it. And so for me, and I think a lot of other people, you know, that's, that was the culture. It was like, you have a rough shift at work, then you go out to the bar and everybody drinks their faces off and they laugh and everybody's taking shots and joking around. And, you know, you wake up the next day, nobody's talked about, nobody's debriefed, nobody's talked about what happened. Nobody's actually, you know, we're all masking it and we do it as a group. And for me too, that was like a, a weird line that I was trying to walk. I was, I was different. I mean, I didn't, I looked a lot different than, uh, you know, all the other guys that I got hired with. And I was smaller than a lot of the guys. And I was like, I wasn't in good shape. I was like, I was an addict, you know, I don't, I didn't, I don't know how they gave me the job, but manipulation or something, who knows? I was really, you know, I, I didn't think I'd have a place. Like the guys at my work are very, the typical men's men, I guess. Like they all play hockey. I mean, this is Canada, right? They all play hockey. They do home renovations or they, you know, they've got like, uh, they're like their idea of a good time is like get together and build a fence and drink together, you know? And I didn't do any of that stuff. Like I didn't, I wasn't part of any of those cultures. I wasn't handy. I didn't, you know, I didn't play sports. I, again, it was that revisiting that, that same thought of my place in the fire department is going to be the party guy. So I ended up trying to walk this very thin, this, this very like narrow line of party guy. Like I had to stand on the party guy side of the line, but not cross over to the alcoholics 
side or the addict side because at work and in that culture and i think a lot of this these like male dominated jobs are like this like the the party person is celebrated but the alcoholic or the addict is like shunned and so i tried to walk that line very unsuccessfully did you hear them talk on some of the calls about because you you came across the alcoholics and the addicts right so did Mm -hmm. did the conversation about those calls ever play into that yeah for sure we go to overdose calls and people would say, take your time. Don't, you know, don't, we don't got, we know who's at this address. Don't even take your time going to this one. Or like, you know, if the person didn't make it, it was an overdose that, that we weren't able to bring back or the paramedics weren't able to. It was like, ah, yeah, it's just another junkie. It's like, you know, the, the world's a better place because of it. And I was like, you know, I, to me that hit home and it hit hard. I was like, very, very, like I saw myself in these calls and go into these crack houses and I'm like, fuck, I was here last week. And here I am with a uniform on and I'm dead. I listen to my coworkers talking about these people and you know the culture is slowly I mean at least in in my city it's slowly changing and it's becoming a little more accepting of this stuff because of I think more awareness and people speaking about it a little more but um for me it was really tough there was a lot of uh a lot of negativity around you know the the alcoholics the addicts and it was and everybody knew that that's that I was one Here's an, another big part of the problem with that culture is you're never talked to, you're talked about. So, you know, I was like abusing my sick time. I was showing up under the influence. I was just a, I was just a shitty coworker, a shitty employee. I ended up not being, I was living two worlds, right? My, my outside life was like, I was around criminals and junkies and, and I was involved in all of these things. And then I, you know, had to get my shit together and put my uniform on and all of a sudden, you know, act like I'm this upstanding citizen, you know, eventually the worlds collided and, um, you know, they started overlapping one another and, and my outside life just took over my work life and I just couldn't I couldn't keep it together anymore it was just like painfully obvious I got put in you know I got kind of tucked away at different stations that were like outlining stations where they put either like the the people who were about to retire or the problem children which I was the one of the main ones but if not the main one for my time at least let's jump into you know you you did relapse a lot but you and this is something I talk about just like literally however many times it takes it doesn't matter yeah. you keep coming but eventually the 50th time for you out of 49 what changed what was that moment for you yeah so for me you know my last couple of years of my you know, like drinking and using career you know i had three suicide attempts i i was around people that taking your own life or using intravenously like that stuff just was not acceptable i was so full of shame so full of remorse so full of like self-hatred i loathed myself i really did like i i took all the mirrors off the walls of my house and anything i could see my reflection in because i was so disgusted in who I become. And um, I just, I woke up one day, it was so yeah, there was like, literally, probably 50 relapses from the time I was 22 to 32. I'd gone out on New Year's Eve and I was trying to trying to do my thing. I was trying to trying to get fucked up. And I, I drank an obscene amount of alcohol. It took a, an insane, like an obscene amount of drugs. And I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get high. 
I was just this like stone sober person. And I was like terrified, like my medicine wasn't working anymore. So it was January 2nd. I woke up and I was like, listen, I've tried, I've tried to take my life, my life three times unsuccessfully. I got to do this for good. Like I just, it was like, I was at my wit's end. I was at, I had nothing left in me. I had no fight left. I didn't have another, another drunk or another high left in me. I was empty. Like I was so, I was like, there's nothing behind my eyes. You know what I mean? Like it was just, it, my world was so dark. And so, you know, I, I hated myself and um, I sat down in my garage and I was jotting down on a piece of paper, like ways to commit suicide. And like, I literally had on the top of the piece of paper ways to die. And I had all these like, you know, and I was thinking about things like, you know, I don't want, I do, don't want to do it in a painful way. Somebody's going to find me and I'm going to hurt other people. And because I had been to so many suicide calls and I'd watched my mom try to do that in front of me as a child. And I, you know, that stuff affects me deeply and I didn't want anyone to find me. So like, you know, my options were like, I work in Niagara Falls and there's a, a good way for me. Like that, that was my, that was my, like where I was coming to. I was like, okay, I'm just going to like hurl myself over the falls and like one last hurrah. And as I was writing this list, I don't know what happened. It was literally like, I just had a moment where it all kind of came together. And it was like, I, I remembered the warmth in the rooms and the way that, you know, everybody was so happy to be sober and, and the hope that those people's stories kind of gave me. And, and I dropped the pen. I like crumpled up that piece of paper and I threw it in the garbage. And I thought, I never want to see that piece of paper again. I'm going to go to the first meeting I can. And I found, you know, a meeting that evening or later that day, maybe it was, but um, I walked into the meeting. It was the same meeting I'd gone to so many times, but, you know, I walked in with us like waving this white flag of surrender. And I saw all the same, like a lot of the same people and I expected them to be like, okay, this guy again. And I just woke, you know, I walked in, I shook the first person's hand that, that reached out their hand to me and I didn't let go of it. And I bawled my eyes out. I hugged this guy and I didn't have a clue who he was. I bawled my eyes out. And I, I think, you know, everything changed in that moment. I felt like, yes, this is the same room with the same, a lot of the same people and the same bullshit slogans on the wall and all this stuff. But I'm meant to be here. And, you know, I said to these people, hour, like just a few hours ago, I was ready to take my own life and I've got no fight left in me. I need you to show me how to live because I have no idea. From that point on, I mean, life changed drastically. They probably surrounded you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of joke about this sometimes. I'm like, so they, they surrounded me. They, they gave me like all sorts of hope and, and, you know, gave me all these words of encouragement. And it was like this rally for me in true alcoholic fashion. You know, I made the whole meeting about me. I didn't let anybody else talk. They didn't cut me off. They let me just blab on and on and on. But my God, I, I was like, I had never been in a place where I could say this stuff before. And I was like, it's a I'm Canadian saying, AA meeting. Everyone is going to be so kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, but it was like they didn't interrupt. They didn't say, "Okay, that's enough of your share." It let mm -hmm. me go on for like forty minutes. Oh my god! <laughs> but listen, like the, I, it was like I was my own speaker meeting. My, you know what I mean? Like I, I turned a discussion meeting into a speaker meeting. Um, You're lucky you weren't in New York City. <laughs> oh yeah, honestly, like I and I, I'm honestly, I think I'm just lucky that those people had seen me coming and going for ten years and seen the slow decline in my mental and physical health that they realized, okay, this kid's talking now. 
but not this kid. I'm 32. This man's talking now. 32 years old with like a, a like literally like the emotions and the, the mental capacity of a 13 year old because that's when I stopped growing that way. I think they just decided like, let's just let him go because this is the most we've ever heard from him and something's clicking here. So let's not, you know, and listen, like, I mean, Hey, if I was in that position, I would, I would do the same. Now, if somebody did that in a meeting and they really needed it, I would, I would just let them go because I get something from that too. What it's, I mean, it felt selfish to me, but like, it's not selfish because everyone's getting a piece of relatability to all those fresh, like raw emotions that I was going through. And like my first time to say all this stuff to people, a room full of like pretty much strangers. Yeah. It was, uh, it was amazing. And it was like, it was like the therapy session of all therapy sessions. So you get sober and what happens to your life? Do you go back to being a firefighter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I didn't actually take time off work to get sober. Well, I was working a one week on one week off schedule at the time. So I had time to really like go through it. After that first meeting, you couldn't find me anywhere, but at a meeting with my sponsor or at the gym, like that, those are the only three things that I did because I was terrified to go anywhere else. I owed money all over the place. I was, I didn't, I didn't trust myself to even walk past or drive past a bar or certain areas of the city. I realized what I needed and that was intensive. I needed to be in like in my own way, intensive about this process. So, so yeah, I I went back to work maybe a week and a half later. My sponsor brought me through the steps pretty quickly. You know, I think he, he saw a real, a real need to expedite the process and he taught me that everything you know about life everything you know about yourself has to be relearned like let you beat yourself down to nothing let's rebuild you so i took that same attitude with work i went back into work you know i started doing my job i started showing up to work which was new for me started showing up on time i I showed up with a clear head and you know i wasn't hurting i wasn't hung over i was i was there i was present and i started to you know i was eight years on the job at the time and i started going to some of the newer guys like the you know the guys have been on for like a year and i started asking around i was like listen if you guys want and you don't have anything to do right now because you know we have some downtime will you teach me like teach me how to catch a hydrant again or teach me how to do this and i took that same attitude with work and because i had like you know i had really mistreated that job i had i had not put everything into it i hadn't learned what i needed to know and that was scary for me because like you know yeah i have coworkers to to fall back on and depend on but like i can't i can't have them do that for my whole career they they were already sick of it so i i took that same attitude at work and i i started to ask the newer guys like show me how to do this show me how to do that teach me this teach me that i actually don't and i was just honest i was like listen i'm eight, i'm 8 years on the job I, I don't know how to do this thing i don't know how to do this certain you know pump calculation or whatever it is that that there was and guys were like okay i'll show you and i think some of the people around me a lot of the people that had watched me go through it they were like they were my biggest naysayers i guess i think they took notice of it and you know i didn't have friends at work i had like you know i had a couple of people that i might see or talk to outside of work but aside from that i didn't want anything to do with them they certainly didn't want anything to do with me i was a liability to them and i started to like notice some of my coworkers like start to give 
me attention again. And then people would start asking like, what happened? Like something's changed. What do you do? And I was like, oh no, I just take it in interest, you know? And I didn't want to talk about being sober yet because they had seen me try to sober up and, and go back out again and relapse and relapse and relapse. I didn't want them to say, oh, this again, you know, he's just doing this thing again. And it's only a matter of time. Cause I thought, but again, like I said, I don't have another one in me. I have, so as I was mending, you know, relationships outside of work and, you know, making good on bad things I had done in the past, I was also doing that with work. And I think I started to gain a little bit of, I'll use the word respect. I don't know if it, I don't know if they would use that word. And then I, you know, as time went on, you know, I, I went on, you know, do really well and write a, a test to be a captain and progress through the ranks and really find my place there and build, you know, I was building confidence in my skills, building confidence in myself. And so, yeah, like eventually, you know, after about six months of staying sober, I ended up telling people at work and I like, I just walked into the, <laughs> into the uh, staff room one day and everyone was talking and I was like, uh, I was like, Hey, just so you guys know, I'm a alcoholic and a drug addict. And they're like, yeah, like we know. <laughs> we know. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, but I'm in recovery now. And they're like, okay, that's what's different. That's to tell us about that. And I was like, listen, I've been going to these meetings. I'm like changing my life. And I'm really like, you know, I, I was t- t- getting physically back into shape. I was like mentally, like, you know, building my brain. I was like rebuilding my life in all aspects. And um, I just said, listen, I got to be completely honest with you. I made this like blanket statement amends to the guys that I work with saying like, I've, I've mistreated you all. I've mistreated this job. I've mistreated myself. I've taken a lot of things for granted and I will ne- like I'll never do that again and I'm sorry and please let me know how I can make this better for you guys. To me, being from that culture and kind of brought up in that culture, I was, you know, that don't ask don't tell like I was telling it all. And I and I got into some of the details about what was going on and I was just honest. I said, "Listen, like that day when this happened, this is where I was at in my head and like I, you know, and I was expecting for guys to be like to kind of give me a big fuck you and and people just started leaning forward and like tell me more. It got to the point where I ended up doing like presentation, like I put together <laughs> a presentation and I I delivered it to every one of the stations in my city telling my story, telling like like kind of a no holds barred account of like what kind of a piece of shit I turned it out to be and and what changed. You know, I told my story, I said like this is what happened. This is what it was like. This is what happened and this is what it's like now. And you know, for me and it, as time went on in, in recovery and I started sponsoring people and helping other people, I was doing, you know, I, I was speaking in the jails and the prisons. I was doing like whatever I could for my recovery and others' recovery. I was like, why not give this back to work? And to my surprise and delight, it was so well received i had people coming out of the woodwork like i can't believe you said that stuff because i've been going through this i can't believe that you went through that and you didn't say anything because i've been holding this thing in forever can i just dump it on you i was like yes like i'm here for you just give it all to me and let's let's figure it out so early in my career i was searching for that like i want to be like I, i i need a place in this culture and I wanted to ride that line of like party guy. And my place truly ended up being recovery guy, guy that you could talk to about anything, open book, that like a guy who's truly trying to be an example of, please show us your weaknesses. Your weaknesses are welcome here and let's talk about it and talk through it and let's go through it together. And, you know, and this is for my department, majority of the guys took very well to it. I don't know what shit was talked behind my back because listen, <laughs> we're, we're like a bunch of high school girls at the fire department but um 
from the the feedback I got and the the personal conversations and messages I was getting from guys, it was very well received. And I felt like, and I still feel like I'm doing my part and I did my part in making a small adjustment in the culture. Yeah. It's a big adjustment in the culture, but the more you change other people and, and just allowing that to seep in. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, now today, like I'm recovering from like a, a post-traumatic stress injury that had I not been in recovery, I would have never been willing to go talk to somebody and find out what's actually going on here. Yeah. Like I can remember going one of the, one of the, you know, most difficult calls I went to, I went to a call and I went, it was an overdose call and I went into this basement and uh, we were the first on scene you know we went in it was the guy was obviously dead there for a couple of days probably and his family is his family had come and found him and they were flipping out i went downstairs and, you know we rolled the guy over and i looked and it was my my best friend from when i was out there using and you know we had since separated but the real ironic and shitty part about it is um i had bumped into him about three weeks prior to it and he had told me i heard that you're doing well now i heard that you change everything you know i i think i need that for me like how do i do this and he was reaching out for help and i gave him my number he never used it i tried to do what that guy did for me in the <laughs> the urinal but um <laughs> he, he didn't take he didn't take the number and then you know three weeks later i'm rolling him over and seeing him purple and stiff and gone it was a really eerie thing i i was the captain on the scene and i had to explain it to his family they didn't know that i knew him like my crew didn't know that i knew him and i kept that kind of to myself because i didn't want to fall apart but i i really i, I was i that broke me and um a lot of the talk about him in particular was uh, just another junkie and, and i i it changed everything like i that one in particular changed everything even in recovery for me you know after i had that everything started to change and i started to have panic attacks which i, I wasn't having before i started to my moods were a little volatile I started to notice big changes in, in myself. My girlfriend, my now, well, she's now my wife, but a girlfriend at the time was like noticing like, oh, like they're, you're not the same. Like they're, 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 what happened? Like there's something going on and she's in recovery as well. So it's, you know, she's the, the hands down, the most wonderful person I've ever met in my entire life, able to talk to me about absolutely anything and make me feel safe and make me feel worthy. But she was noticing things kind of like going a little askew. And I was having these panic attacks and these like like i don't know what to do with my body i'd freeze up and i wouldn't know and then i or i'd lash out in a way that i was so not characteristic of me in recovery and i couldn't figure it out and i was just like oh my god this is like hopefully this just passes it's just going through a thing or whatever and i started to do the thing that i know is like i was making excuses for my behavior i was taking something and calling it another thing or putting blame on another thing and it was never affecting me on a call at work it might have happened like things might happen when i was at work but like not on an active call so the last time i went to work i went to a basement fire where the first crew in basement fires are really extremely hot uh we were looking for the fire my crew was like i was a captain so i'm in charge of three other guys we're making our way down the stairs and i i felt it come and it that this massive panic attack it happened like that and it was like i don't know what to do with myself i froze up everyone's like come on let's go let's go I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. I couldn't do anything. And then once I, I don't know how long I was kind of in this like froze up frozen state for, but when I finally came out of it, I was panic breathing. I was losing my mind completely. I just wanted to rip all my gear off me and get out of there. I was, I was so terrified and wound up and everything was coming out at once. And it was in like one of the most dangerous environments I could do that. And so I ended up 
saying I have an equipment malfunction. I was able to like put my words together over the over the air and tell my platoon chief, like, I have an equipment malfunction. I have to come out of the fire. Please send another crew in behind us. And so we went back out and everyone was like, what's going on? What happened? And I, after all that talking I had done and all that, like, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And I was, again, I was back in that place. Like, I'm too embarrassed to say what just happened to me because I had like this idea of myself that I had now built myself up into this like indestructible recovery guy. Yeah. Recovery guy. And like, I felt strong. I felt healthy. I felt like all these things that were very, very, they were what I wanted for me and my life and my job for sure. And I came out and I said, Oh, you know, there was equipment malfunction. I couldn't, my breathing apparatus kind of made a hiccup and I couldn't breathe for a period of time. I just didn't trust it. I have to change it out. And, and I went behind the truck, pretended to change my bottle out, or I did change my bottle out, but I really like had to like calm myself down. And we ended up having to go back into the fire eventually, but once it had all been put down. So, and nobody could figure out what the hell happened. And I just like, I lied. I told them it was an equipment malfunction. And I've since like realized that like, it's not really a lie. It was an equipment malfunction, but the equipment was me. Right. Um, <laughs> Great equipment. Yeah. And so I got off shift that day and I knew something was wrong. And I, and I, it was like all the times that I had been saying like, no, this is something else, or this is just, oh, I'm just going through this. It's a tough week or whatever it was. I realized, no, it's, it's, it's much more than that. And, you know, A, I put my life in danger. I put other people's lives in danger. I wasn't able to do my job and people had to come in and do my job for me. My guys are perfectly capable of doing the job, but I wasn't at all capable of leading them. So I made an appointment that day with a psychologist and, and had an assessment done. And I did like, you know, I spent a whole day with them doing assessments and, and they came back with this result, you know, two or three days later. And they said, uh, listen, you can't go back to work right now. I'm not saying your career is over, but you're sitting on the absolute extreme side, like extreme end of like our PTSD and anxiety depression scale. And I was like, no, I'm in recovery. <laughs> like that doesn't like, I'm like the, and they're like yeah so what you don't do drugs and drink anymore right well, yeah, wait, they're like, yeah, like, that's, that's actually more to the point you have no medicine. yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and I had a hard time with it right like just um, you know I had built this idea of myself up as this strong recovery person and you know that idea has since shifted for me and I feel like I'm doing by talking about this uh, sharing about this by being honest about what happened and what I'm doing right now. Like I, I went to treatment. I I'm still, you know, actively like me, I meet with my psychologist every week. I'm still doing everything that I need to do for my recovery, but I feel like I'm still, I'm, I'm doing my part again in like raising awareness and changing the culture that like, I'm not weak because I'm off. Your brain was injured. Yeah. Absolutely. Like literally, like if you did the scans, PTSD shows up on the scans as a brain injury. And I think it's really important and really awesome that you did that, took the time and it's a result of your recovery. It's just the next iteration of it. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I really do. So we know exercise is a huge part of recovery. It builds something called brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, in the brain. Super, super important. Super important for your brain health, by the way, and your recovery in, in, from PTSD. Muay Thai came into your life is a huge, huge piece. Tell me how that works to build with your recovery. Yeah, for sure. So when I first got clean, you know, I was looking for something. So for me, I needed something to excite me. I needed something that was a little dangerous. 
I needed something that was physically demanding enough that I was like, I mean, I was out of shape. I needed to get back into shape, but I wasn't a, you know, walk on the treadmill or do a, a spin class kind of guy. I ended up finding a Muay Thai club in my city. Somebody had suggested Muay Thai and I did a trial class with them and I was like, okay, this is it. I'm exhausted. This is exciting. I get to punch and kick things. I get to get punched and kicked, which was like also a little exhilarating for me. So it was like, and I was learning a new skill. I was having to like, and it was something very, very new. So for me, it was the same as everything else I've, I've been talking about, like build me up from nothing. And so I started to like really dive into the culture around Muay Thai. I actually have a, like a Thai aunt, like a, an aunt from Thailand. So, you know, I'd pick her brain about Muay Thai. She had brothers and, and uncles and cousins and stuff that were fighters. And uh, I started traveling over to, to Thailand, you know, because it's their national sport. That's where it came from. And I, I started training over there and and, you know, ended up getting like a place there to stay. And I'd go over there for two months every winter and just like train as hard as I could really learn about the culture. And it brought me so much. Like I was able to build like confidence in myself. I was able to see myself grow and progress in uh, with a, a skill that's like measured you know, like for, with fights and, and like, kind of like, you can see your progression and the people I was meeting were all, and this is like, I didn't know this existed prior to recovery, but like I was the white type people I was meeting, they were all like health conscious. They were like, let's be up at 5am going, go for a, you know, a 7k run, then train for two hours and then do it again at four. It was like, they were living and breathing Muay Thai. And I loved everything about that. The friends and the people that I have met from that sport are second to none. Like there's some of the greatest people I've ever met in my life and had some of the greatest experiences in my life with that sport as well. To me, like I needed, I always need a new challenge and there's nothing that there's the new challenge does never stop with these combat sports. There's always a next thing. I've fought some great people that we've become like, you know, really good friends as uh, as a result of like, you know, fighting each other for, you know, nine minutes or whatever. And just like the community around it is wonderful. And then all the combat sports are like that. You know, I, if I walk into like a world's gym or something like that, I'm like, this is a scary, intimidating place where everybody's staring at themselves and at each other and taking photos of themselves flexing. But I walk into a Muay Thai gym or an MMA gym or a boxing gym and like nobody has a phone in their hand. Everybody's like, nobody's looking at themselves. First thing people do when you walk in the, do the door is like, hey, are you new? How can I help you? Like, come and train with me. Let me show you this. Like, there's no hierarchy of like, you know, beginner to professional. It's like everybody's there helping everybody, which to me also mimics a lot in recovery, right? Everybody is doing that sport to do better for themselves, but also to help the people around them grow. What did the Dharma recovery, the Buddhist recovery, how did that, how did that come to play? Yeah. So for me, again, getting into the Muay Thai culture, there's like a Thailand has a, a massive Buddhist influence and Buddhist community. You know, I've done some like really interesting stuff. I've been like, tattooed by like, by like a Buddhist monk with like the bamboo stick and like gone through a whole bunch of, of their ceremonies. And like, I, I really just fell, I was infatuated with that culture for so long. And then when I started to dig into like what Buddhist principles are all about, I was like, the Buddhist principles were very much more applicable to my life. And I saw a lot of again, a lot of common ground with like recovery stuff and Buddhist principles. And then I started to kind of like look around about that stuff and I found Refuge Recovery and um, Noah Levine, you know, I got to know him a little bit and, you know, we've had a bunch of phone calls and my, my wife and I started a meeting every 
Wednesday night refuge recovery meeting. It's it's out of our tattoo shop, Bond Street Tattoo. So it's Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And it's a Zoom meeting. And, you know, finding those those meetings were the answer I was looking for, the next step I was looking for after 12-step meetings. And I found refuge. It was just like, okay, this is this is my home. Like I needed a new home for recovery. And it reinvigorated my interest and in like, you know, really diving into like meditation. So refuge recovery has like has inventories as well that you go through with a mentor, which would be like the same as like a sponsor. There's a lot of parallels. The principles are a little different and the emphasis on like meditation is really, really huge. And that changed a lot for me. Like having a regular meditation practice has really, really helped me in my life. And especially going through what I just explained with the stuff at work and panic attacks and all that stuff. It's really, really been a great solve for our part of the puzzle, at least. Well, your story is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Really important to be told. So many different aspects of it I love. And I appreciate you coming out. It, It really means a lot to a lot of people listening to hear someone come out and talk about this stuff, as you know. And I encourage you to keep sharing your truth and helping to change that first responder culture so that we can help more people. So thank you. And where can people find you if they want to reach out or do you have social media? Yeah, for sure. And thank you again for having me. I mean, this has felt like I feel like I've known you forever. So this is like really nice to just sit and chat. It's it's really nice and comfortable. But for me, like socials, I mainly just use Instagram. It's uh, underscore Chris underscore how underscore. I mean, I'm on that most of the time. I don't have Facebook or anything like that. I'm not a Twitter guy, but I am. I'm actually working on starting my own podcast as well. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it's called Authentic Adversity. And it's just going to highlight stories of like real stories stories of adversity or, you know, people who have overcome something in life. It does, you know, it could be recovery. It could be, you know, uh, like I've got like musicians, I've got like fighters, I've got firefighters, I've got like, you know, business people, all walks of life. But the common theme is going to be like overcoming some form of adversity in life and what happened, how it changed you and where are you today as a result of it. So, I mean, all I have up for that right now is an Instagram page and it's just at authentic adversity. It's perfect. That's what this podcast cast is about courage to change over whatever your adversity is. So it'll be a perfect, my listeners will love it. And we'll post the the link to your, both of the Instagrams. Perfect. That'd be fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, Scott, I mean, it goes without saying, except that we're going to say it, that that was an incredible episode. Unbelievable. That guy has an unbelievable story. It's as if you took a person and you said, how can we just like add up everything that a person could need to overcome into a single person and then have them come out the other side, just the raddest dude ever. And that's what happened, basically. So now Uh, we know the recipe. We know the recipe. That's all it takes is a lot, a lot of hard stuff. And then a lot, a lot of hard work, I guess. That's all it, that's all that is. This one just like, I mean, I feel like we should just have this episode as kind of like a um, just the smashing stigma of every kind episode. Totally. 
Yes. You know, it's just like, okay, so um, can men be impacted by childhood sexual abuse? Yes. Can firefighters experience all kinds of these things? Yes. Even when you feel like you're totally fixed and everything, can your brain be hurt in significant ways? And can you still find some level of recovery and peace? Yes. Like it's like, so, I mean, thing after oh, thing after thing. Can you reduce the stigma of being an alcoholic and a drug addict with first responders? Can you go and take a person who doesn't believe in religion or is turned off by religion and can 12 step AA help them? Yes. Can they, you know, take up martial arts later in life? Can I mean, it's just like, you're just like, okay, cool. Like, so I'm over here just hanging out. Um, no, <laughs> I, it's, made a, it's, I made a sandwich the other day. That was yeah, yeah. pretty good you know yeah, yeah exactly all by exactly. myself so by myself um, <laughs> and he's like a humble and kind and nice guy i mean it was just he was amazing it was just amazing and and the way he talked about all of those different topics we just brought up was done in a way where i feel like people are going to be able to he really hear the message. And that's like, sometimes you could tell a story and, you know, you have to have a PhD in psychology to understand what the underlying message is. And I feel like he said it in such a palatable way. Could you believe how like perfect circle that was with like the fire chief saying, yeah, yeah, bottle it all up. And then literally the point where he's going around to all the stations, delivering like a PowerPoint presentation, just putting all this stuff out there. I was like, Oh my gosh, man. Like, and then to just be sort of this like sounding board for, you know, as soon as he goes first, it's like, everybody's just waiting to, for somebody to ask. And man, just unbelievable. This is one where like the outro is kind of dumb because I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going like, wow. Wow. So cool, man. Wow. Real cool. Yeah, guy. we're really we're really not saying much here. That's basically <laughs> what's happening. Is that we're just like, cool, that was so good, right? Yeah. Okay, man. Yeah, good job. Woohoo. Okay. Woohoo. You thought it was good too, right? It was good. Oh, it was, it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> how helpful we are so helpful so helpful yes i just can't you know i i'm just so thankful for all the places that he's willing to go and you know all the stories that people tell i i do want to take like one second to anybody who we didn't do a good enough job when they've come on the show to just say like thank you again for reliving this stuff and i know sometimes we get used to telling our stories and we get used to having to relive this stuff but it can really take something out of you every time you do it and it is not something that we take lightly or think it is a small thing. So I am just so thankful for everybody that comes on and shares their stories because it really, really matters. And it is not a small thing to have to keep reliving it over and over again. So thank you. Word. Word. <laughs> That's me being really helpful. <laughs> mm, great. No, it, it's huge. And it does, you know, when you tell it a lot of times, it does lose its power over you. There is a piece of that. And I, I have to remind myself that for me, it's easier to talk about these things because that's the world that I come from. And I, I believe that's the case for him as well. But I know that the first time anyone says these things to another human being is the most intense emotional experience that it's like it bubbles out of you. And what I do want to point out is that the more you tell a story of the types of like sexual trauma that we talked about, the multiple, or even, even finding the friend or whatever it is, it takes the power out. It does let 
out the steam and it takes the power away. If you're listening to this going, oh my God, I could never ever say something like, or you have that secret that's deep down inside of you. And you're like, I could never let it out of my mouth. The true experience is that over time, it just doesn't have that fester. And that freedom is available to anyone. It really is. And it doesn't mean that you would, you know, get on, you know, a conference call with your entire extended family and let them know. But it does mean that like with the right people under the right circumstances, working through that stuff, you can have freedom from these types of experiences that just crush you. It's just, it becomes a normal sense of sadness and grief over it, but it isn't, it isn't days or weeks or years around this, the story. Yeah, totally. Every time you do it, it does help somebody. There is somebody out there who is just waiting maybe for you to go first. And and it really does help this community when people share. That kind of brings me to something cool we've got going on where we are trying to kind of build that up and have some more people that can be brought into this and can be truly helping people. Ashley, can you tell us a little bit about the scholarship that we've got going on? Lion Rock has a scholarship right now that we are offering to seniors in high school and freshmen in college who are interested in pursuing a career in psychology, addiction counseling, or something in that helping field as it relates to mental behavioral health. You have the opportunity to write an essay about your experience, whether that's personal or family or friend, however this topic has affected you. And we're giving away $500 to four people who are wanting to go into this field. So the deadline is August 15th for submission of your essay. That is six days from the release of this episode. So please, please, please go to lionrockrecovery.com slash resources slash scholarship. Submit your essay so that you can be considered for this scholarship. I am rooting for you. If you have any questions about that, feel free to email us podcast at lionrock.life. We will send you a link if you cannot find it. Love it. Love it. We want to hear from you, your future do-gooders and uh, people that are trying to make a really important difference. And Ashley, pretty much just as good as therapy is what I'm about to do. Are you ready? I mean, never. Here we go. Why does Sherlock Holmes love Mexican restaurants? Hold on. You're not going to get there. Hold If you listen, use me. If you get there, I quit the show. Okay. Well, then I don't want to get there. <laughs> that is not, that's a terrible threat. Uh, okay. Well, I will be. No, sick. no, no. Try it. Just try okay, it. Try okay. 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 Why does Sherlock Holmes love Mexican restaurants? He finds the criminal beans. <laughs> <laughs> they give him lots of good case ideas. <laughs> oh, God. It's just so worse than I could even imagine. <laughs> Oh, my God. oh, it's a painful oh. process for me, too. I, I mean, it takes yeah, a- it doesn't feel like you're experiencing <laughs> my trauma. Oh, my God. I'm going to need like dad jokes, EMDR. So I was there and he said the one about pirates of the Caribbean. And I was like, I'm going to die. I'm just going to die. Then he said case ideas. And I just want you to know that Sherlock Holmes is not hurting for cases. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't, you know, I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> I can't even have a quesadilla. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Well, I hope 
I hope that you have a, a great week and maybe get a quesadilla. It sounds really good now after this you uh, will conversation. You forever be reminded of Sherlock Holmes <laughs> as you order. Ashley, anything you want to leave with? If you found anything in this episode triggering, please feel free to reach out to us or someone you know in recovery or some safe person to talk to about it. Please, please reach out. We are here for you. Just last week, someone reached out about their son, about an episode in a couple seasons ago, and we were able to connect a listener with a speaker from an episode from a couple seasons ago. And they were able to have a conversation. We want to help you. All you have to do is reach out. Give us a chance. If you need to talk to somebody, even if it's not us, we can help you find someone. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.